Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. It's great to have you with us. And we are on a new platform. We are uh, experimenting, and uh, last week we were on, I can't recall the name of the platform, but it didn't work out. We weren't all that happy with it, so we just want to forget it. But anyway, we are on Riverside FM this week. We have been exploring uh, uh, possibilities uh, beyond the world of Zoom, and this one seems to be working pretty well. Anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley, and uh, if you're new to the Theology Pugcast, I'm one of the hosts. I'm a pastor. I serve a church here in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, I've written a number of different things. And uh, one of those things is a book that's uh, forthcoming on Tom Bombadil, and I just got word that uh, Brad Beerzer is uh, is uh, moving ahead with the forward to the book. He he uh, he. He stated to the editors that he loved my book. He didn't say that to me directly, but I heard it through the grapevine. So that's a good sign. (laughs) But anyway, uh, we're breathlessly anticipating the release of that book. But enough of that for now. Uh, Why don't uh, you guys introduce yourselves, and why don't we uh, go to you first, uh, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a professor emeritus of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I run a ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries. Great. Now, Tom, as soon as you're done, uh, I'm going to come back in with a couple of announcements, but then we'll cut back to you because you are the man of the day. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Uh, Tom Price, uh, teach systematic theology and Christian ethics philosophy, a few other things. Uh, One place, Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and uh, I am in the process of writing things. Uh, I hope to have good announcements with all of that. Um, A lot of material that had sat in stacks and back burners and small notes and clips finally starting to uh, actually come back alive, so um, I'm excited Mm -hmm. about that. Good stuff, good stuff. So before you jump into the topic of the day, Tom, we want to let folks out in Pugcast land know, we want the Pugsters, we want the Grumblers to know that, that things are coming together for a couple of live events. One of those thing, uh, events is the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Uh, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network conference in Nashville, which is actually, I guess, in Lebanon, but I think they're just saying Nashville just because everybody knows na- what Nashville is. But uh, we are going to be live on stage at the Fight, Laugh, Feast conference. We're very honored to be, uh, uh, you know, asked to do this. And so we, uh, we've confirmed the dates. We're, we are free. We're going to definitely be there. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So we don't know exactly what we're going to talk about yet. But uh, <laughs> that's not unusual. <laughs> Every week we're, we, we talk about Sometimes, what are we going to talk about this time? up into the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> And another thing is we've been hinting at a Pacific Northwest tour for a little while now, and things are coming together for that, and we have some dates. So it's going to, it's going to happen. We're going to be in the Pacific Northwest from October 28th through November 3rd, and we're going to be in the Portland area on the 29th, 30th, and 31st. We're going to be up in Moscow, Idaho, on the 31st and 1st of November, and we're going to be in the Seattle, Washington area, uh, the 2nd and 3rd. We're hitting all the big, all the big towns. It's and, almost like uh, we have a comedy show going, yeah. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, we, all, all three of those locations are infested with progressives, 
But hey, we're from New England. We're used to that. We're used to being the, the, the you know, the kind of the weird, you know, socially conservative intellectuals and the only guys in the room who actually believe in reality. But anyway, uh, such is uh, our lives uh, coming up in the months of October and November. And we're looking forward to that. But anyway, enough of that. Uh, you'll hear more about that in days to come and we'll give you all the specifics, but you've got a few months to plan. And we do too. <laughs> okay, Tom, what are we what are we talking about today? Okay, well, I, what I decided to talk about, um, I kind of threw something out to you, uh, I think a couple days ago, which I think is going to actually tend to be a, a series of things. Now that I look at how big a topic it is, and how I will not be able to do the kind of justice I want to, but in short. Um, what I want to do is kind of look at something we've touched on at different points, um, but is really a comprehensive subject, I think, that is important for us to address with, with more depth. And I think it's the issue of meaning and history, or what, you know, some people in the academic world will talk about as kind of, you know, kind of philosophy of history or um, speculative history. But what is meant by that is not simply the science of doing history, although that's part of it. But it's actually the question of, of, of sort of a metaphysics of history. What is history? What's its nature? Um, what's its purpose? Does it have a telos? Uh, you know, um, does it have uh, an end, um, uh, an ultimate frame of, of meaning from which doing history makes sense, um, uh, learning from history makes sense, um, being, being um, I think, cultivated and shaped by certain aspects of history makes sense. Um, and I think the reason this topic keeps coming up for me is, is I keep seeing a cloud of uncertainty around the contemporary culture and even the church, um, both with historical ignorance, um, but also a, an inability to discern, first of all, the significance or importance of history um, other than just kind of in a, in a kind of symbolic way to, to, that, that addresses certain kinds of um, positions within contemporary, you know, politics of power. Um, and so um, I think Glenn had posted some things in different uh, formats this week. Uh, one of the articles, I, I don't know if he remembers posting, is on Obama and the broken nation he has come uh, of age. But there's a great aspect in this where it talks about kind of the aging elderly notion of kind of outmoded and historically tried ideas that failed um, and the way they get repackaged with all this energy almost in a, in a kind of advertising and propaganda campaign. But combined with that is this need to basically um, take advantage of adolescent ignorance of history and experience. Um, they become kind of the, the fool tools, if you will, that knock everything down to allow a certain energy to fill these otherwise very bad ideas, which history has shown over and over again, not only can't work, I mean, not only haven't worked and caused so much dread and despair, but can't work. <laughs> um, yeah, that was yeah, I think, one yeah, I think that's, some, yeah, I think some of us, when we think about this, you know, like I think of myself as seeing a, a rerun. This is like the third or fourth time in my life I've seen this rerun. And I was born in the 60s. I, I lived up right next to college campuses. Uh, I saw we had hippies who lived with us, you know, as a kid. Uh, you know, I, this is stuff that's old news for me. I think that, you know, what we have is we have sort of like this, uh, uh, we've got, uh, you know, 
I guess, progressives uh, who take advantage of sort of new virgin soil. You know, so so who where who are the the patsies this time? <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm yeah, getting, yeah. getting, getting at? So, so if I, I actually think, and I, this is something that disturbs me a little bit, I actually think that some homeschool kids are the new generation of patsies because they've yeah. grown up in, in sort of uh, uh, worlds that uh, were constructed in such a way so as to sort of keep out a lot of this stuff, and the stuff is never addressed consequently. It's just alien. It's, you know, it's sort of like that's what other people yeah. do. And then, but at the same time, there's a fascination with yeah. it that they have. And then they're, they're, they, they, they kind of get sucked in. Uh, and the old methods for, you know, uh, sort of debunking traditional values are, are dredged up once again and yeah, applied yeah. to this group, you know. You know, and, and the thing is, all the bad ideas that they keep wanting to try again were originally constructed by dead white males. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you right. notice that? Yeah. I mean, I noticed, I noticed that most of the progressives are live white males. <laughs> yeah. 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 They, they tend uh, to feed I, it. <laughs> yeah. So, Tom, um, uh, I used to introduce my, uh, uh, my survey classes with um, – Concepts of philosophy of history. Yeah. And the three I tended to use were first Ambrose Bierce. History is an account, mostly false, (laughs) of events mostly unimportant, performed by rulers, mostly knaves, or soldiers, mostly fools. (laughs) Wasn't he the author of the Devil's Dictionary? That's where that comes from. (laughs) Then you have Henry Ford, history is bunk. That's right. (laughs) <laughs> and Mark Twain, history is just one damn thing after another. <laughs> another. <laughs> so, but, but the problem is these damn things keep coming back. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, you know, that, and that, that, I think, is an interesting point. Uh, Chris, go ahead. You were going to say something. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think one of the things that is important to keep in mind is when a historian does the work of history, there is a selection process. And that's that's important to note. Now, the selection process in terms of what do we record, why is it important, these kinds of things, is not arbitrary. Uh, You know, I think a cynical view is, you know, the winners, you know, write the history and that it's just all kind of self-justifying. I think that's uh, I think that's belied by the facts, because a lot of history has been written by the losing side. And a lot of history that we, that survived was very critical of the of the regimes that were in power at the time, but uh, but this whole idea that we need to have criteria that we use to evaluate things is just true in every you know walk of life. And you just think about the fact if if you were to tell your wife uh, this is what happened on my way home from work today, you wouldn't describe every single car that passed you. You wouldn't describe you know the entire you know journey and every street that you traveled down, you would be selective. You would select material based on how well it helps to get across a point. All those things that you're relaying are facts. Uh, and yes, you were in, you know, sort of in the story and you were, you know, get providing a perspective. So in some sense, it's not fully objective as though, you know, it's, that, it's interesting you mentioned that because yeah. My, my late doctor father, John Webster, I was, I was talking to him. We were talking about different conceptions 
of kind of inspiration and inerrancy. And he, he held wholeheartedly to inerrancy, but he said, but what I don't mean by that is that when scripture says, you know, Jesus and the disciples went straight to Jerusalem, that didn't mean that maybe they stopped and went to the bathroom on the way. <laughs> you know, in other words, you're not, you're not being less historical right. just because you don't mention every single else. And, and to hyper-literalize that kind of statement is not kind of, it's not really, um, it's not objective in any kind of human sense of the word, if you could say that. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's not after every kind of aspect, but that that's one trail. And I want to get back to this notion that there are measures in some sense to kind of qualify history when at least, at least you're aiming towards an account of the reality that occurred. Um, but also the notion that you're trying to, in some sense, make sense of its meaning. And then what kind of, what kind of reality vision is there to say history both can, um, you know, the process of, of gathering um, facts and, and evaluating them can be something that we can um, do and do in a way that actually does achieve some sense of the meaning and significance of things and, and address real happenings and their consequence. Um, and again, there is, there is a kind of finitude we have in relationship to that, I think, which accounts for a lot of the conflicts in interpretation and, and power conflicts. But on the other hand, I think um, the fact that, that we try to measure an account of reality and have some kind of meaningful narrative to tie together different aspects um, is already hinting towards something I think that Christianity introduced to the world in a much more fuller way than maybe classic ancient views of, of what the historical was considered to be. And then we see with the modern enlightened world in post-modernity, I think they take, take a hold of a lot of you know, Christian concepts that don't belong really to anything from their reality or non-reality visions. And then they act as though this is natural and normal and something that, that you, just, you just have believed um, anyway, whether Christianity was on the scene or not. Um, Henri de Lubeck uh, had this great quote, and I think maybe it's worth kind of starting here, is he said, Christianity is not one of the great things of history. History is actually one of the great things of Christianity. Ooh, I like and, that. And um, I think that quote is, is brilliant um, in the sense that history as we know it, kind of linear um, events that, um, that really occur in time, space, not as mere constructs, but actual realities in, in, in the world and, um, and that have consequence, but also tied to a larger order of meaning that is, is um, hinted at in all of the events of history, but is not merely located there. The revelatory or the ultimate ground and end of history is actually the, the source that, that will unfold the depths of that meaning. Um, and so, um, in a sense, Christ is, you know, the alpha in the omega. Christ is the center point that, that for, for Christians, the pivot of all meaning in history comes to its culmination. And his taking on flesh and dwelling among us is the entrance, in some sense, of the revelation of that meaning um, that was never was only hinted at in shadows and hints even in the Old Testament, although they, they were there. But what you have entered into time is actually something of the ultimate meaning of history, the end, but only a taste of it. And it's actually, if you read later in Revelation, it's not up until till some major apocalyptic and end time events, really, that you're going to see Jesus un, 
do the scroll where the meaning of history is finally let out, right? Um, yeah, I, and I, I so, think there. I, yeah, I think there are a couple of things here. I just want to take quick note of uh, Tom because this is great stuff. Uh, you can kind of think about Christianity and history uh, at a couple of levels. One is just an just kind of the history of history. You know, this idea that you know <laughs> Christianity uh, provides the framework within which history can be actually be you know uh, you know done as a discipline because you know of the point you just made. You know, beginning and linear. That 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 framework provides uh, you know the background against which to mix my metaphors there uh, history is is written and uh, it reminds me of that that great quote uh, or that great uh, sort of witticism um, and I can't remember who said it but it was referring whoever said it was referring to Jean Paul Sartre he said Jean Paul Sartre is the greatest uh, atheist Christianity ever produced. <laughs> in other words, it, it's, with, it's within the framework of the Christian of, of a Christian civilization that our modern atheists do their thing, and they uh, <laughs> they steal they uh, from us all the time. You know, I, I I made a point you know of bringing this out in my book, you know, Household and Warfare Cosmos, with regard to Carl Sagan. But uh, the other thing is is that there is a real meaning. There is a real meaning that Christianity. Uh, is the means by which that meaning is revealed. In other words, Christ, as you noted, the incarnate God, uh, it's because uh, of, of you know, his entrance into history that history has meaning to begin with. Um, not just in the sense of that there's a transcendent God who begins and ends things, but entering in. So really good stuff. That, that's right, and I think I think that the incarnation really is a, is, is a significant game changer in terms of the, the conceptual frame that the church went into the utmost parts of the world. I mean, you see, you know, Philo of Alexandria, for example, he, he's wrestling with intermediaries. He's wrestling with balancing the Hellenic cyclical view with, with the, the Judeo, you know, the Jewish view. And, and he, he really, he was trying to make a way to kind of bring these two into some kind of harmony, but his emphasis tended to be a bit more on these kind of like his logos was definitely not the eternal God, for example. And so this was something kind of uh, shy of that, which our heresies would tend to, to pick up on. Um, but you, by the time you get to the New Testament, you actually have this, this, um, this radical, radically new yet something foretold all along um, come on the scene. You have something interesting happen, even with, I mean, think of the Old Testament. I really think the roots of, of, of the, the um, Christian vision of history is, is the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's understanding of the historical and, and, the, and the significance of that. The in, the, um, these events that are happening are not random. Um, they aren't merely defined only by that immediate context that they're happening, but they're tied to a larger plot line, if you will. And, you know, I mean, our theologians tend to use redemptive history or something along these lines. But what we're talking about, basically, is history in which divine action is, is the primary um, center and um, cause of what's going on with all these secondary causes. So there is a place for secondary causes to be doing their thing and only look at it from that level. In other words, what do I mean by that? For example, if somebody is, they're building a tower in, in Babylon, 
on the level of creaturely causes, you can just look at the creaturely elements of that. But that doesn't tell you what the story of the Tower of Babel, seen from the revelatory light of it's trying to make a ladder to the heavens and what that's all about, is all about. So these two things are they're happening, but just on different orders of reality. So I think one of the th key things here is the historical and the providential are two aspects of a Christian view of things um, that ties together the eternal and the temporal in a way that I don't think the cyclical views of the pagan world, if you will, um, was able to do. And so they tended to think either of an eternal recurrence, which Nietzsche wanted to get back to, or a certain timelessness where you would just have kind of eternity um, just keep re-showing, just showing up over and over, over again in time. And there really was no significance to things other than being vehicles for the eternal. And so I think Christianity yeah, in the Old Testament, yeah, go ahead, Glenn. Yeah, one of the things that I think is important here is, is to get that idea of linear time. Yeah. Um, which you've been, you've been uh, discussing here. Because, you know, I, we, we've said before, I've said before multiple times that, you know, modern critical theory, critical race theory and all that is a Christian heresy. Yeah. Because what it does is it takes the Christian emphasis on the rights of the poor and the oppressed, and it absolutizes them, but in a way that removes it from the, the theological frame. Yeah. Um, what you see with the idea of, well, Hegel, where him, yeah. history is moving toward a conclusion, Marx, where it is moving toward yeah. a conclusion, um, the entire rhetoric of being on the right side of history, history yeah. all of that is yet another, a, a, another version of a Christian heresy. Yeah, because it is through mm -hmm. Judaism and Christianity that we get the idea that history is moving in a direction, but they're putting it in the imminent frame rather than in the transcendental. Yeah, yeah, excellent. And so one of the things I was originally going to do is talk about emancipatory conceptions of history like Hegel and, and Marx and then show how basically are they are just that, an imminentizing of something that was held within a proper view of transcendence and imminence in, in classic Christianity, and then the way in which a lot of the outflow, bad outflow of doing that is really what we're dealing with today. But what they are is they hijack something, they unmoor something from the, the Christian metaphysical vision as scripture and classical Christianity represented it, but it has enough of that in it, for example, and we'll get to this, I'm going to do this on another week, but Hegel does have a teleology. History has an, a meaning. It's the, it's the absolute through creatures, uh, human creatures, realizing itself. Very, when you start to mesh God and creation so close together in the action of a human is basically the, the actualization of the eternal, you start to see how politics takes on the dimension it does because that is the absolute realizing itself in time. And therefore there's a necessity to it which creates a, a, non, a, a worldview of violence. But that's something I want to get to, to later, but you, you hit on it exactly the way I want to start taking it, is kind of showing first what, what revolution did Christianity introduce into the world? And then what is the character kind of of that classic Christian vision? And then what happens when we, we immanentize this and, and uproot it from its proper Christian metaphysic and enter it into a speculative one like Hegel, Marx, Herder, Kant and some of the stuff today. So that's kind of what this kind of series I want to do. So we can yep. draw off of all these figures, but I definitely want to do better justice to them as well. 
Well, I think before you jump into that, uh, Tom, I want to just briefly uh, explore the idea that history is a story. And uh, cyclical stories, because they don't go anywhere, don't make good stories. Um, there is a kind yeah. of, uh, I think, uh, sort of critique of, of the kind of the cyclical uh, that is narrative in nature. In other words, the structure of the structure of meaning just generally requires that there is a beginning, middle, and an end. Right. So, yeah. uh, for for people who enjoyed, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, or C.S. Lewis, you know, there are a lot of writers who've written fantasy. And one of those guys is a fellow named Robert Jordan, who wrote something called The Wheel of Time. Yeah. And The Wheel of Time, if you've read it, you know yeah. that it, he's he's endeavoring to sort of write a fantasy, uh, create a, a, a kind of a, a universe uh, in which uh, a cyclical, you know, sort of a, a history uh, is is uh, at work uh and time is not going anywhere. And Jordan died before he could finish it, but there was really, there's really no uh, place it was going anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> After about the third or fourth book, I was like, this is going nowhere. <laughs> and that was the point. That's the, <laughs> it just doesn't yeah, go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's what, I mean, I, I know uh, Ronald Nash, he, uh, yeah, Ronald Nash, you probably remember him from years ago, kind of reformed philosopher. But he used yeah. to talk about, the, he called it, you know, the pessimistic view of the cyclical view of time. And, and, um, but but there, here's an interesting point here, and, and maybe uh, one of you knows better how to sum up kind of cyclical views than, than kind of how I've summed it. But, but there is this notion that, um, first of all, the historical doesn't, take on that kind of meaning significance um, for cyclical use of time. Um, rather, the, the way maybe taking, I mean, you think of maybe the old uh, statues in ancient Greece, the way in which they, they sort of timelessness could be ca captured in, in the, the making of an ideal image within in a particular statue. That was sort of how they would view Time, of course, they still had to live in time, and they, so they did see a kind of pattern to the cycle of the the work week, the agricultural, you know, cycle. And so, in a way, Christianity—I I don't want to uh, kind of communicate that Christianity doesn't have some aspects of its very thick understanding of history that doesn't include that. I mean, Genesis is the setting up of time, the ordering of days, the, the you know the the evening and morning, the first day, the way in which the whole work week is set up rest, Sabbath, you know, limiting that. But then that sets the pattern for, of course, agricultural cycle and the like. So we do have something of a pattern. And we, we just said a little while ago that we keep, we, this is the third or fourth time around we've seen this stuff. So on the level of secondary human creaturely levels, there are kind of patterns that kind of keep, keep showing up. Um, you know, you could, you could talk them kind of patterns of rebellion on the one hand, um, um, the natural consequences of certain ideas within the confines of finite reality. I mean, certain ideas are going to be enacted in reality where that reality is going to be impacted by it. And when that is done, that shows a certain set of results that will show up again and again. Um, but that's something very different than what we mean by linear time. We're talking about the way is that all that repetition is not something that is just the reenactment over and over again of the same thing. But it is actually different. So we can affirm a little bit of Herder there. But it's also going somewhere. And it is not simply the reduplication 
but it is the unfolding of, uh, of something that will come to a culmination. Yeah, yeah Tom, maybe, maybe one way to think about cyclical time is to think about it through the lens of Plato. Mm -hmm. uh, Plato believes that there is a thing he called the one, which he can identify with God, uh, that is the source of all things. Everything is, is sort of an overflow, an emanation out of him, and it trickles down through all kinds of different layers until it eventually ends up uh, with the world. Now, the one is completely unchanging and unchangeable. It just is what it is. And what that means is that time can't go anywhere because everything that happens is simply a reflection of the static, unchanging, impersonal one that is at the origin of everything. Anything that happens in this world is simply an expression of that. But since that's unchanging, it's not going anywhere. History can't go places. And mm -hmm. you, you're just stuck in this constant recurrence. Yeah, I've got, it makes me wonder a little bit about, uh, you know, various eschatologies. You know, when we think about amillennial uh, understandings of, of, you know, the, the nature of, of history, um, I wonder sometimes, and, I, and this is probably unfair, but I wonder sometimes if a little Neoplatonism is behind some of the uh, ways of thinking that we associate with, with uh, the amillennial view. I'm not saying in every case, but I wonder about whether yeah. or not it is. Not, not, not so much among the amillennials I know, but we may know a different <laughs> set. <laughs> but I'm no. sure, it, I mean, I think it does impact, the, I mean, it has impacted Christianity. Um, and, I mean, the, some of the, again, Christianity brought its view, but it brought it into a, a, a very different set of understandings. Um, that it hasn't fully and always weaned itself off of. I'm, uh, you know, I've read some people to, you know, where the theologians are saying it really wasn't up to 19th century. It was some of the stuff that was, uh, I think it was actually Rowan Williams on something studying the past that that a Christian conception of time really didn't take root in in certain certain arenas for you know almost 1900 years. So it finally was able to kind of to come to full fruition. I have to kind of trace that back down. But so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think you know, what was set in seed, if you will, um, is, is still something we're continuously kind of unpacking as, as things change. But it, it's, it's amazing how, and I think this is one of the things that, uh, you know, I think, um, I think it was Hans Frey, didn't he write a, what was his work on, um, uh, Let me look something about here. biblical and historical narrative. I can't remember the name of the book. But anyway, it was it was having to do with the way in which basically historical narrative, if we've come to understand it in in the West, is completely indebted to biblic the biblical understanding of history and linear history, and that even you know the way in which people tell their stories in the West and everything else is is not something that would have ever occurred had Christianity not not um, come on the scene. Um, and I think this is this is very similar. I think to Glenn's point with these these um, the radical movements that that try to kind of um, th think that Christianity somehow is this you know grand oppressive meta narrative that has done nothing except uh, oppress and uh, has offered nothing else, and yet they they hold that view of of time and in in a kind of reductive form and culmination that some kind of justice can and will be achieved. I mean, think of the eternal. You know, think of the the ancient world. I mean, you you you're really in a position in which justice can never be achieved, 
um, if if they're you know, and, and some of the figures, I think it was the Stoics who basically, um, you know, this is just going to be keep, keep being done over and over again. I think Nietzsche, you know, interesting. I didn't realize this. It's something I read a long time ago, and it came back to mind. Nietzsche's way of grappling with his his saying, okay, he wants to return to the myth of the eternal return. His way of grappling with it to make it meaningful, <laughs> if you will, is that you need to act in such a way that if this is what you're going to eternally have to do, it's worth doing. Right. So every single moment bears the burden of that kind of eternal pressure, if you will, to, to make sure that your eternal reduplication of it is such that you would want to have to do that over and over and over and over again, nonstop forever. Sisyphean, carrying the boulder up the right. hill. Right, right. And I can't, uh, imagine again, to I, do, I can't imagine how that would ever be, you know, feasible, that this is something I could do forever. I mean, even like eating chocolate. <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's like sooner or later, you're just like, that's enough. I mean, I just had enough. <laughs> Well, but but Chris, all you have to do is go to any contemporary service, and you find lots of people who can sing of your love forever. That's right. Yeah, I, I, my, my patience with that is very short. <laughs> yeah, but my my my, my dad. Daughter, had the the way, to uh -huh, go ahead, Glenn. <laughs> my daughter, by the way, pointed out I can sing of your love forever is seven words. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> My, my dad, my dad always had this thing where he said, "If if, if heaven is what the Baptists keep saying it is, I, I don't see anything appealing about it." Um, <laughs> but his point was this kind of endless repetition of of just of really things that he wouldn't typically want to spend any of his time doing, other than a little while during the week. You know, um, right, I mean, right. I understand that, that that's how banal worship had tended to become at a certain point. Um, <laughs> And uh, but but I think, you know, one of the points here is, I, I you know, it's something that's worth mentioning is Nietzsche, at least, was what I consider to be a, a consistent enough to follow through whether that means anything in his world or not doesn't matter. But he followed through that if God is dead, you know, in any mean the transcendence gone, if if basically the earth has been unmoored from the sun, if you will, then certain things have to follow. I don't think social justice warriors that have, have, have bought that ontology ripped from the Christian redemptive vision um, really thought through enough that the real consequence of their thinking once it, it leaves that is a very brutal thing which, which Nietzsche was able to see, uh, a very vindictive kind of, of, of dealing with injustices and um, a very oppressive one. But on the other hand, that this is, that, where do they go other than a, an absolute mater materialism, which is you've spent your whole life pursuing nothing, or a, a Nietzschean kind of eternal recurrence. If this is what you want to spend all of your life doing, only focusing on this one aspect of things, that this is what's going to be repeated for you forever. <laughs> and I don't see actually culture being developed out of that, you know? No. I mean, no, I think that, that's, that's what, that was Nietzsche's aim, is to at least rebirth the higher, idea, the higher aspects of our natures, if, if you will. Um, I think that's what he wanted. I don't think that's what I'm seeing. Well, the problem, of course, with Nietzsche is, is that if you don't have any kind of, if you don't have any transcendence, you don't have any, any standard against which to, to 
rate things as being more important than other things or higher than other things. It's just that's right. Whatever, whatever. And this is why justice eventually falls apart. You know, within a uh, within the uh, the world of the woke, uh, the only reason why their uh, agenda has any salience, has any sort of future, is because there are still uh, uh, some people who are kind of operating by the old standards. So if you lose those, and we've talked about this before, what if, uh, you know, you know, the, uh, you know, the patriarchy decides, well, you know, what they refer to as the patriarchy. Okay. Yeah. That's the way it all works. You're right. It's just, you know, whoever, whoever strongest wins. Okay. We're just going to play by those rules now. Let's go for it. So what is, what does that mean? Well, that means Mm -hmm. that, uh, the whole way of categorizing that, you know, they take for granted oppressed and oppressor just doesn't mean anything anymore. It's just a free for all. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Well, see, Nietzsche it believe, it agreed with you. He, he, he did not buy this notion that you, he thought it was a Christian hangover that you could, you, the slave revolt, that you could use guilt to somehow shame the, the oppressor into becoming an ally. He, he, he thought that that was, if anything, that, that, that was kind of something that w- disgusted him. Um, and <laughs> on the other end, now, now an interesting point is, I, I guess, um, kind of uh, tied to this is, is kind of the way in which we see now, um, and, and again, I'm going to kind of go back and forth with these things, but the, the way we see this history has to now be, first of all, reinterpreted from a, a certain set of present ideals, aims, goals. And so anything in the past that did not somehow accord with that or anything guilty of that, that we've seen this going on for generations, now, is somehow to be shamed, blacklisted, <coughs> burned, scorned, not taught, not understood. And the only thing that can be is this kind of places where this pure set of ideals and this reinterpreted history can kind of um, take hold, coupled with this kind of absolute downgrading of the past, this kind of unrootedness. Mm -hmm. And you, you also have to limit your study of history to contemporary villains. Yeah. So, for example, you never discuss the fact of slavery in Africa. You never discuss the Arab slave trade to sub-Saharan Africa and the horrendous levels of brutality that were involved in that. You never discuss the fact that Native Americans held slaves or that the Aztecs slaughtered tens of thousands of people right. um, kind of on a regular basis. Those are things that you don't have to address, you don't have to talk about. You look at the past only through the lens of contemporary uh, offenses and then what you also do is you do you have basically what I would call a, a it, to, to, I'm playing the game now uh, that, that I would call um, basically systemic ethnocentric, if you will, supremacy um, imperialistically conceived. Let, let me unpack that. You happen to be a person that is in one of the dominant societies, even if you're not one of the majority within it. And so you have all the privileges and advantages to basically that no one else who's working in sweatshops in the rest of the world and actually putting together the parts that make up your iPhone while you tweet each other about injustice in your own country are about. 
So you see very little concern for real global oppression where it is happening in ways where people don't get, have, live in, in you know, uh, rough part of towns but still have a flat you know, screen TV the size of their living room. And you're not, you're not addressing the, the horrendous oppressions in the world of, of, in conditions um, that people do. So what you have is, yes, relative injustices are injustices. Relative oppressions are oppressions. And, and this is not to minimize the suffering and hurt of people. But what it's to say is when we only take conceptions of oppression and injustice, which happen to be relative within a frame of probably everyone that's been more privileged than anyone in the history of the whole world and are only dealing with it within that small micro level, um, there's something fundamentally problematic about that. See, Christianity, when, it, when it's doing its thing right, hasn't been guilty of that. It has actually been part of mission work in all of the world, going into living amongst the conditions of the oppressed and actually bringing good news and actually bringing the very heart message that uproots the idolatry at the core of things that actually starts to change um, places uh, from, from darkness to light. And, and this is something you, you just can't get. You can't get with these pseudo-breakoffs of, of pseudo-Christian ideals. Let me, let me introduce a, a great resource. Uh, Glenn noted a number of historical facts that probably folks uh, have not been introduced to related to slavery. Probably the best treatment of slavery I've ever read was by Orlando Patterson. And Orlando Patterson, uh, he's a, I think a, a, a social critic uh, and historian who taught at Harvard. I'm, I think he may still be there. But uh, descendant of, he's, he's uh, from the Caribbean, he's from uh, Jamaica, so he's descendant of uh, slaves in Jamaica. But uh, he wrote a book entitled uh, Freedom in the Making of Western Culture, which was a marvelous book that I read uh, maybe 20-plus years ago, and it was one of those seminal books for me. But he starts the book off with uh, his, his confession, and his confession was, when I began my study, uh, I assumed that Western culture uh, erroneously was the great you know, uh, you know, the great source of injustice in the world and that Western culture was uniquely guilty of certain things. And one of those things was slavery. And he said, what I discovered is the exact opposite. Western culture is the source of our, of our, uh, you know, commitment to freedom. And it's the history of the world universally in which we see slavery practiced in the, he, he takes you through just the way Glenn does or did, uh, continent by continent. This is what slavery looked like in South America. This is what slavery looked like in North America amongst, amongst Native Americans, as, as Glenn noted. This is what slavery looked like in Africa. This is what slavery looked like in the South Pacific. And, 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 he, and he says, you know, some of those ways that slavery was practiced was, was a lot worse <laughs> than anything we've seen, you know, in recent history. So, Great, a great book. If people want a, a you know a resource that will introduce them to just how the Christian faith and he bring he does he makes the connection to Christianity, how the Christian faith has helped to transform the world for the better with regard to the elevation of freedom to the level that we now uh, you know recognize it well, in terms of its importance. That's the book, Freedom in the Making of Western Culture by Orlando Patterson. And, and that's the that's the other thing. I mean, this goes right back to Christian conception of history and, and its meaning is that that 
we can actually talk about the fact from a perspective in which what was a norm in most of the world almost universally and was a repetitious cycle was actually broken when you have, not broken everywhere all at once. See, this is the other thing, and this, this troubles me with, I think, a lot of the current presentist thinking is that this, there's this um, technological, everything has to be happen all at once, you know, rather than the biblical understanding that great actions take time. Um, this is, you know, I mean, look at the incarnation. Um, look at the years of wailing and, and wanting and hastening and waiting that, that goes on with the whole history of the Bible. Look at the, you know, when the fullness of time fully comes. Um, look at the, the kind of, um, uh, the way in which it took the church two to 300 years to hammer out all the nuances of what biblical teaching said about the incarnation and the Trinity, right? Um, so great action takes time. Christianity didn't just end every sort of social and structural form in which sin arranged itself. But what it did is introduce the uprooting of it. It took the, the, the pathogen out. <laughs> it, it, it took out that which was cancerous so that the rest could start to, to, to heal in an imperfect way until the fullness of time comes in, in the full way. And so what you have is a very impatient, obnoxious eschatological thinking, if you will, that you know everything has to be realized right now. If we don't have absolute perfect justice, perfect systems, and what they don't realize is when they try to do that, not only undercutting reality like Christian history basically attests to, they end up doing the worst kind of damage because they try to bring the kingdom out of their own resources, and their own resources are not just. They are not righteous, they are not holy, and they are not pure. This is why the kingdom, when it comes in its fullness, is Christ coming. Yeah, it's it, the, the entire rejection of the concept of historical processes is, is really at the root of a lot of this, as you just pointed out. Yeah. And... Where it leads, if you try to force it, where it leads is automatically totalitarianism. Yes, yes. There, there's really no other alternative. You either let the processes play out, you allow historical change to occur at the pace that the society can handle it, or you impose it from above in a totalitarian way. And, you know, that, that those are really your only two choices. What I'm looking at right now is if you look at the statistics on race relations in the U.S., up until really not too long ago, African-Americans were saying on the whole race relations are really pretty good. And then suddenly you get this big push surrounding George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, and so on, so that now everything is seen in terms of race and racism. You know, you tell a kid in school that he can't, this is a literal example that came up. School policy is you can't wear hoodies. The kid comes to class with his hood up, with a hoodie, and the teacher tells him, take it down. He calls her a racist. <laughs> this literally happens now. So how far back have we now set race relations with this particular push? And let's ask another question. If you remove Christianity from the picture, which they're explicitly trying to do, yep. you get rid of Christian morality. 
what happens when you appeal to someone's conscience and the idea of justice and so on when you're telling them it's a power game and it's a zero-sum power game and you've got to give up power? What do you, yeah. What's going to happen when someone doesn't accept Christian morality and you tell them that? What you're yeah. doing is you've got a recipe for creating white supremacists. Yes. Well, I, and I, yeah, sadly, they, yeah, they're getting a self-fulfilling prophecy here. It's it, it, mm-hmm. it, it, that's when you handicap and limit and ar- start arresting pastors and everything else, which are probably the one instrument that the most powerful instrument, which has cultivated the kind of Christian um, dispositions to loving their neighbor, no matter who or what they are, rather than competing and div- being in, in, in a divided conflictual relation. You are doing nothing but setting up a recipe for for might makes right. And if they really think, even how powerful they are, uh, the elites and all of their instruments, uh, their nukes, if you will, um, they don't realize, as as Hannah Arendt said, when you don't have masses on your side, uh, you're a sitting duck. And uh, she she understood probably totalitarian better totalitarianism uh, as anyone. Um, and that that's what the, that's what. You know, again, I, I, I don't think people are thinking, <laughs> but this is, again, part of the, my, my issue is people are not, they, they don't have the moral frame um, other than a kind of relativistic competitivism that, that you know, almost a tribalism now. Um, and, and I mean, I mean, I, there's a lot of, lot of threads that have led to that. I mean, I, I think, uh, Chris, you've been reading, is it Yenner's book on um, the right. family? Right. Um, but he's someone who, who's pointing out on the level of the family just the damage done to um, the, the natures and kinds and relations that were givens. Um, and once you start, you start breaking those down, you set these, these conditions up um, that are horrendous, not just for the survival of the family, but for a civilization and everything else. Um, I think this is similar with, with, with what we're dealing with, with meaning and history. Um, I, I think what has happened is we have a lot of different threads that are sitting together in a very ill-defined kind of pot, if you will. It's kind of like taking every ingredient in your refrigerator now and just putting it into a, into a bowl and cooking it and seeing what happens. I mean, we have nihilism, we have Hegelianism, we have Marxism, we have all these theories that are variations of it. We have threads of Christianity, eschatology. And so there's no coherence to any of it, but there are assumptions going on. And this is what I was meaning is that on the one hand, you have this meaning-based history of like say critical theory, that there is some meaning to fighting injustice, which there is, that there is some meaning to, to kind of getting a hold of those places at which some people have not been, been um, considered fully human, which there is. Those are Christian concerns. But then when you make everything that and then you start to break down all of those other aspects uh, of life that aren't bound up with that. um, And then so you have a meaning base here. You have ends, justice and the like. But you don't have a worldview, first of all, that can underwrite it and support it. But then you have an ahistorical side or a dehistorical dehistoricization, as some say in which you basically say the past is nothing other than just the dominance imposing their interpretation of what's meaningful onto the world. You create a counter-history. Now everyone is either forced to accept it and learn from it and adopt it, or they're going to be considered an enemy. I mean, we're dealing with, we're dealing with 
probably some of the worst kinds of polarizations and conflicts um, you can imagine in a society. But maybe a good way at this point is just to kind of back up. Let's just say, uh, well, we can... Let me, let me go at this direction maybe for one. I'm going to do it from a national side this time. I'm going to do it from a theological side the next time I, I deal with it or Christian view. But what happens when one's fundamental kind of historical story does become something that now is just one among other equal variants? And, of course, the one that has kind of been the main story, say, of the U.S., and its interpretation of things now is considered basically oppressive and, and, uh, and nothing else. So when multiculturalism happens and one particular culture happened to, to dominate the framing of the national story, what then begins to happen when that is taboo and now you have a, a floor for competing narratives to take its place? What happens to a nation then, a national identity, um, people in a nation. I mean, I don't see a lot more than balkanization or tribalism, if that's allowed to keep going. Yeah, I think that that's, that's true, but I also think what happens, because I've, I've witnessed this sort of thing firsthand, having been involved with these matters uh, in the past, um, is, is uh, there's a new veil that goes up. And uh, so what'll, what'll hap- or what has happened, and I think is happening now, is you've got uh, this sort of cacophony, uh, and then you've got somebody who becomes the you know person who adjudicates. Now, when you become the adjudicator, guess what you do? You become the, the guy who writes the new story. So there are uh, you know politicos, there are academics, there are whatever. So there are, there are these people who are taking advantage of the of this sort of chaos. Uh, and are pursuing agenda that they're not very, you know, very uh, sort of transparent about. And uh, and if you if you begin to you know look behind the curtain, you know, remember that from uh, you know the Wizard of Oz. Don't you know ignore the man behind the curtain. <laughs> when you start to to pull that curtain back a little bit and you see you know who's pulling strings, well, that's when this uh, kind of uh, you know finger of accusation gets uh, gets directed at you for you know doing that and you're accused of being a racist or whatever 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 the thing happens to be today that we're willing to guillotine somebody over (laughs) but but there is (laughs) there is some there is something uh there is someone or people or whatever uh who uh who benefit uh and who become kind of the 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 people who sort of shepherd things along in a particular direction and uh anyway uh and they're and they're really good at keeping themselves behind the curtain. <laughs> you know, there's an interesting thing that I, I read today. Um, it was it was a review or an interview with someone whose book is coming out in the uh, in August, I guess. Um, it's a sort of insider critique of woke capitalism. Okay. <laughs> and what he pointed out is that the people at the top in these companies really aren't that concerned for the most part about wokeness. Yes. They actually hold the woke in contempt and vice versa. But what you have is a marriage of convenience. So for example, big pharmaceutical companies come in 
they're, they're criticized first for raising drug prices. Yeah. And there's all kinds of pressure put on them not to do that. Then they go woke and start promoting social justice and quietly raise their prices. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody complains about it because they're, they're on the right side. That's right. The they NFL. Fund, they fund it too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you know, they, 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 they pay their, their, uh, their bribes to the group by funding these various things, and that shuts off all criticism of them. Yeah. Or think about the NFL. Okay. Um, what was going on before they decided to go woke? There was all of this stuff about concussions and parents who were saying, I'm not going to let my kids play football. You know, and all kinds of stuff like that was going on. Then suddenly Colin Kaepernick comes along and they quickly jump on this, uh, the woke bandwagon. While well, never rehiring Colin, by the way. <laughs> um, they, they quickly jump on the woke bandwagon and suddenly you're not hearing discussions of, of concussions. You're not hearing parents saying, I'm not going to let my kids play football because I don't want them to have brain damage. Yeah, there are. You know, that's yeah. not an example they use, the, the article used, but you can see it there too. The, the guy's got several examples of them, and he started a, a multi billion dollar company, so he knows what he's talking about. This is sort of his circle. Yeah, I th you know, I think uh, what, one of the things that I, I find, uh, well, just exasperating about so many of these young Wokies is just where their suspicions stop. They, they, they're not suspicious yeah. enough, they don't dig deep enough, they don't. They don't uh, call uh, for, you know, sort of, you know, the people that they idolize to put their, their full cards on the table. They, they're willing to stop at a certain point and live. Well, we saw this with the Me Too stuff. Uh, so much of the Me Too stuff helped to bring to the surface just, just how sort of uh, compromised uh, liberal politicians, male politicians have been when, it, when it's come to uh, their own sexual dalliances, you know, their their they're, uh, you know, you know, basically uh, taking advantage of women uh, who are in their employ or want to get ahead or whatever, you know, the old uh, casting couch thing applied to politics or whatever. Yeah. So and uh, now then then it's sort of like finally there's a kind of like uh, an avalanche of things. And, and now all of a sudden it stopped again. If you notice that it stopped with oh, yeah. stopped with Cuomo. Cuomo was sort of like the place where this is okay. This <laughs> has gone far enough. We, we can't well, lose, we it, well, can't lose it, him. It actually started earlier than that with Tara Reid and Biden. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or <laughs> looking at Kamala Harris's background and how she rose to prominence. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. it was okay to go after Bill Clinton after he had been out of office for like, tw you know, 20 years. But uh, yeah. the guys who are still in right now that everybody still kind of need things from, they're okay, they get a pass. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. it... it you know, interestingly connected to this are, are two things. One is the way in which, surprisingly, the elite and powerful and those that actually could do things to actually help the lives of people, especially those marginalized by investing maximal amounts of resource, a whole host of things. And the way in which they create a straw man, you know, middle class Joe the plumber, somehow white supremacist because he wants to feed his family and he cares about uh, ethics that, that actually foster human flourishing. Um, somehow he is the most powerful oppressor of all these people um, just because he, he votes for other people who actually want to be self-determined rather than defined and determined by, 
by these other forces, you know. And yet you have people who actually are in a positions of power who have been for ages able to do something. And just because they get the, 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 the ideology claim right, they confess the right creed, um, all of a sudden they're off the hook and they're an ally and they're not going. You know, all of a sudden, you know, um, Occupy Wall Street. Wall Street's now their, their best friend, you know. Um, and so it, 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 there is this kind of, um, when you, you see this kind of wedding between uh, which tries to, uh, of course, you know, Marx well, would it, have a fit with this whole thing. <laughs> but but we, we, we can all remember this stuff from the, from the locker room. You know, there, you know, when, when you're, when you're in high school and you got, uh, you know, you're, you're there in the locker room and guys are just kind of saying exactly what's on their minds. You, you get guys who are the most popular guy in school or everybody thinks is a great guy or whatever. And, and you know, better. You know this guy better than the girls know him. You know this guy better than the teachers know him. You know this guy. And you know he's, yeah. absolute, he's absolutely worthless scum. <laughs> but he's, yeah, yeah. But he's, he's, the, he's the golden boy, and he knows it. And he, he's, yeah. he's working the system in his favor or to his advantage. And, you know, people just kind of, you know, it, and, and so – you know, anyway, I, I, I think people know where I'm going with this. We've already spent a little bit – we've already spent a little bit of time with it. By the way, on this note, we probably ought to start bringing this plane in for a landing. <laughs> <laughs> and it definitely did go into places like all our shows and, and that I didn't imagine. But that's okay. I'm going to revisit the topic. I mean, one of the things that last point is is the way um, that I think the last glue um, – if there is any that is preventing, I think, balkanization and tribalism, it's consumerism, which is not a good thing. And that's a very frail thing. But I think where I wanted to go with all of this was this notion that I do think our religious identities now are basically consumer constructed. And uh, it's something I'm going to get to in some of the later episodes, because I'm really Mm -hmm. after the pliability of evangelical identity, Um, the way in which um, the, the, understanding of meaning and history, even when we hold to redemptive history, has kind of taken a back seat to our, our consumer conception or our, our choice conception of ourselves and our identities. And then this has played largely into its pliability and attraction to these alternative ideologies because we, we've lost connection to, to the actual um, meaning world um, that Christianity unleashed and gave us. Mm. Well, with that thought, we should, uh, I guess, uh, make final statements or final observations. Anything you want to say, Glenn, as we wrap up? Um, I guess returning to the concept of cyclical history, um, history doesn't repeat itself. Historians repeat each other. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, so, so we, we've had the insider here the whole time, the historian Glenn Sunshine. He's that's been, right. <laughs> thinking Holding about back. this. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Well, I, I've have, I have a history of not holding back, so I will hold back at this point. So I've, I'm all done. <laughs> Anything you want to say as we, as we conclude there, Tom? Um, no, just uh, just kind of wrapping up as some some uh, of our audience like us to do is I'm, I'm really just kind of stepping into meaning and history and the way in which um, history has some kind of movement towards some fulfillment, but also everything matters if anything matters at all, if you will. Um, but how it matters is and how we evaluate that is what's significant. We tend to um, take something that's a relative good 
and make it an absolute good, and we do a lot of damage. And that that old problem of idolatry continues to show itself as in these contemporary movements that that try to get justice. And look, we're all for justice. We want everyone to flourish in the fullness of their created um, giftedness for the glory of God. But we don't want to do that in a way that we end up unleashing forces that are only going to do damnable things. And I think I'll end it with, with that. All right. Well, thanks a lot, folks, for listening to another episode of the Theology Podcast all the way to the end. We give you a thumbs up and a, and a star for your head. <laughs> but uh, if you would like to give us a star, if you want to you know, rate the podcast, and uh, we, we, we... We'd prefer if you gave us more than one. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you can give us five, that'd be great. And, uh, you know, we are on iTunes and we're on Spotify and we're on all these different, uh, you know, places and and sites. We're with the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. By the way, we need to say thank you to the folks who give it to us through the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And we're very grateful for that. Anyway, with all those things in mind, thank you for your support. And uh, thank you uh, for listening to the show. And we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye now.